Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A new survey shows Canadians are feeling uncertain about the future of their workplace heading into 2022. We take a look back at some of the biggest stories of 2021 in federal politics. The Royal Botanical Gardens wants your Christmas tree. The Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum is getting ready to celebrate its 50th anniversary in 2022. And we look back at the life and legacy of NFL icon John Madden. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. New survey from Ipsos done exclusively for Global News shows Canadians are feeling uncertain about the future of their workplace heading into the new year. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Rick. It sounds like not many Canadians think they're going to be heading back to the workplace in 2022. What did your survey find? Uh, well, about 50% of the people that uh, that we interviewed who are working at home think that they'll be heading back to the office with regularity uh, in, in 2022. So half of us think we're going to be stuck right back at home. Wow. Well, I mean, it's not a bad place to be. At least you know you're, you know, you're staying as safe as possible and other co-workers uh, are not around you. Although the survey also shows us that many Canadians, while they've enjoyed their time working from home, some of them are missing uh, being around the office and, and uh, you know, working alongside their co-workers. Yeah, 58% of the people we interviewed said that, but interestingly, 42% said, no, I don't miss them <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, wow, maybe they're looking for uh, some new co-workers. Um, there's also uh, some interesting stuff in terms of um, finances and, and work-life balance. The survey has found uh, interesting numbers in that regard. Yeah, so what we found in terms of work-life balance is that people who have been working at home say that actually almost 90% say that they've actually really enjoyed it. And on the financial question, we asked people if they could uh, be given an option in which they work 20% less hours and receive 20% less pay, would they be interested in in pursuing that? And a really large number of Canadians, about 40%, said that they would. So I think what we're seeing uh, through the course of the pandemic is people are starting to transform their ideas about work. And when it comes to the workplace, uh, while employers right now are thinking about safety, and it was interesting that that's what you focused on when you asked about it, you know, sitting close to people at work and whether or not that was going to be safe, employees are increasingly focusing on preference and how they want to work and how they want to live. So uh, it'll be interesting to see when the um, uh, you know, employers start saying, well, it's safe, you can all come back. How many people are saying, well, you know, that was the question I needed to have answered, and that's why I want to come back. It seems like an awful lot of other people think working at home is really more about how they would prefer to work as opposed to personal safety. Mm-hmm. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about a new survey from Ipsos done exclusively for Global News that shows Canadians, many of them, feeling uncertain about their future at the workplace as they head into the new year. And 50% agree that they expect to be back in the office on a regular basis. The other half say they disagree, so that whether it's a hybrid model or a regular return to work, uh, that's really up in the air, obviously. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and as I said before, if, if people are prepared to make trade-offs as, as big as 20% on their, their pay and their time, uh, and they really do feel that they have a better work-life balance working at home, uh, you know, it, it will be interesting to see when people are asked to come back to the office, the kinds of questions they have for their employers, and, and maybe the kind of conversations they want to have about what their future is going to be. I know that Ipsos has done a number of polls regarding returning to work. Is is the sense shifting from employees and, and workers wanting to or hoping to go back to the workplace? No, it really isn't. In fact, uh, workers, uh, 
first of all, you know, let, let's focus on the fact that only about a quarter of workers actually work at home or like to office type employees. I mean, if you're a truck driver, this is really a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And, and but it's, it's important to note that the most frequent job, the, the most likely job that a man in Canada is going to have is driving a truck. So uh, large percentages of the population, 75% of the population, this is not a conversation for them. But for that quarter who's, who's uh, traditionally been going downtown or commuting to work in an office, um, this is a very, very important conversation. Because as I mentioned before, the, the overwhelming employer conversation right now is about safety and whether or not it's safe to go back to the office. The conversation among people who are actually working at home is whether I want to go back to the office at all, not because it's safe or unsafe, but because I really prefer working at home. Could that uh, could that comment could that lead to a permanent change at many workplaces that you know the hybrid model is what it is and that's that's basically how we're going to work from here on in? Exactly, Rick. That's 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 going to be the really interesting conversation going forward, and we're seeing different large employers respond in different ways. And but the real question this raises is what it's going to mean for transportation infrastructure and what it's going to mean for downtowns as places that people go to work. Because I don't think a lot of people are talking about that right now. Um, you know, there's, a, there's this assumption among people, particularly political people and people in the business world, that all they need to do is flip the lights back on, make sure the place is safe and everybody's going to come crowding back. And the people who are supposed to be doing that are saying, you know, maybe I want a different future. And that future could also be a four-day work week, which has been tossed around from time to time as well. Well, and that's that 20% uh, for 20% less pay. And, you know, the almost 40% of Canadians that we interviewed say, hey, that's a conversation I want to have, suggest that that might be a bit of a runner. We shall see. Daryl, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. As Daryl Bricker, CEO, Ipsos Public Affairs, releasing a new survey done exclusively for Global News that shows Canadians are feeling uncertain about the future of the workplace heading into 2022. 44% agree that they want to return to the office on a regular basis in 2022. 56% disagree that they want to come back. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, 2021 has certainly been a year of ups and downs in Canadian politics. And here to share some insight on the highs and lows is Kim Wright, principal at Wright Strategies. Kim, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. I guess we'll start with the obvious, and that is COVID-19 and the federal government's attack plan against it. How have you felt the Canadian public has received what the government has dished out in 2021? Look, I I think that the COVID response over the last two years, two years ago, we were all okay. We haven't figured this out yet. These are unprecedented times. But two years in, these feel like a lot more precedented times. And I think that governments of all levels, frankly, have have really let down Canadians in the response, both on the procurement of vaccinations and the rollout of of, of vaccinations and rapid tests. Um, you know, we you don't have to look very far and talk to your friends and neighbors about how everyone has tried to get either a, a vaccination or even rapid tests, uh, and and it's been a struggle to say the least. So I think there's a lot of lot of conversations to be had about how we can redo healthcare and healthcare deployment in this country. Certainly is some pandemic fatigue, a lot of pandemic fatigue. Uh, And a lot of people are pointing to the federal government, provincial, even municipal governments for dropping the ball in some cases. Will that ultimately um, uh, get to the ballot box or people realizing that, listen, you know, government officials are trying their best. They just can't get it right. 
I think there's a frustration and a growing frustration of the finger pointing between federal, provincial and municipal governments, in particular, the federal government and the, and the province. You know, you don't have to look farther than um, paid sick leave. And the federal government was saying, no, that's a provincial responsibility. The province of Ontario was saying, no, no, that's the Fed's responsibility. And ultimately, Canadians and Ontarians were left holding holding the bag on this. So I think what you're seeing is all of those finger pointing the usual way that the the Federation uh, has, has sort of managed itself politically. People are just tired of it. And I think you're you are starting to see a shift away from from uh, just blindly saying, oh, well, that's this jurisdiction or that jurisdiction. Kim Wright is our guest, principal at Wright Strategies. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Um, let's go back to the summer election, really the election that no one wanted other than the federal liberals. They managed to pull out another minority. Not much changed in terms of the political map and how it was colored. Um, your thoughts now that we're a few months since the election and uh, how that uh, has related into what we're seeing in the House of Commons. Yeah, the lack of urgency for that federal election still still maintains, right? We're not really back into the full swing of Parliament. We haven't seen a lot of pieces of legislation. There was a lot of lag time uh, for what was supposedly a very urgent uh, urgent federal election. Uh, it's hard not to be cynical when you just look at where the numbers ended up. One of the things, though, I will say is, is that having sent now back two minority governments all of the parties have been basically told by Canadians, get it together, play nicer in the sandbox. Uh, I, I am happy to see that finally the conversion therapy bill got fast-tracked through. That didn't need to have the political wrangling we've seen on that uh, over the over the last few years. Uh, they finally, everyone just decided to, it was time to get it done. So hopefully there's more of that. I'm, I'm going to try to be optimistic about that going into 2022, that they will, they will find where those common grounds are because Canadians require it. A minority government usually lasts less than two years. So in saying that, are we looking at a 2023 snap election as well? <laughs> I'm not sure it's, hard, it's easy to say snap election at this point. Who knows uh, when it will be. One of the things that is interesting to me will be how each of the parties start to figure out uh, their leadership, their uh, their fundraising strategies, how they're going to actually engage both their party membership and grow their base. And there are some serious lessons for each party uh, going into whenever that next federal election is. Have a better narrative. Why, is, why are you going to the polls, what is it that you want to lead uh, Canada and uh, both locally and around the world? What do you want to do as the leader of this country? And I don't think Canadians have been well served because I don't believe that any of the political leaders have had an answer to that question yet. Kim Wright is the principal at Wright Strategies, our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we take a look back at 2021, the year that was in Canadian politics. One of the big stories is Canada's relationship with China and the return home finally of the two Michaels. Yeah, that, uh, again, this goes to what is Canada's leadership role around the world? What is it that we want to see from our diplomatic community? We'll see what happens with, uh, with frankly, with the Olympics uh, and how that will unfold. It, it is my hope and, and prayer that all of our Olympians will uh, be able to come home safely. Uh, but there are certainly some worrying signs, uh, signs for that. The two Michaels being held for hundreds and hundreds of days 
with no end in sight uh, is, is this sort of geopolitical brinksmanship that no one wants to see for Canadians. So I, I hope that the Prime Minister has uh, taken some of these some of these situations to heart and figured out a way to bolster our diplomatic strength around the world. I, I fear that he hasn't, uh, but again, trying to be optimistic as we go into the end of this year and be charitable this time of year. Uh, but there are some there are some troubling signs in our diplomatic service around the world, and especially with China. Canada is involved in a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. Uh, certainly our relationship with China isn't that great. Uh, I think that's probably a fair statement. Is it going to get worse before it gets better, do you think? Sadly, I think so. One of the things that I think we need to see is, is a global coming together uh, against what has been happening with China um, especially over the last few years. And you're starting to see that as, as we've seen this quote-unquote diplomatic boycott uh, of the Olympics. Now, what does that look like if any of the Olympians uh, get into a bad situation? That becomes more questionable. Um, you know, we, we've just seen recently the NHL saying they're not sending players over to the Olympics. That has more to do with COVID than the geopolitical situation. I would have preferred to see it being more of a stance on the geopolitical Uh, situation. But here we are. We'll get more from Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies on the other side of the break as we look back at some of the big stories of 2021 in federal politics, certainly one of them being COVID-19. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Our guest is Kim Wright, principal at Wright Strategies. We're looking back at the year that was in Canadian politics in 2021. Another big topic, one of the main election topics and a uh, hot topic, pardon the pun, throughout the year, is climate change. Uh, the Prime Minister made a number of uh, proclamations. It called for a global carbon pricing plan at COP26. Of course, uh, reducing our emissions is uh, you know a big goal of, of this country. Where do you think Canada sits on the climate change action plan on, on the global stage? So there's two parts to that. One is the global 100,000-foot public policy side of things. And I think Canada always makes the right noises and right signals. And, you know, we'll see how that actually shakes out in practical, meaningful ways that, that has we haven't always lived up to those those proclamations and obligations. But what's really interesting to me is how Canadians have been taking on the climate file themselves Better, better emissions vehicles, really pushing the car manufacturers into that space um, because, you know, money money talks and, you know, where those consumers are putting their dollars. Uh, better efficiency on appliances and, and, and their home and their homes. You know, those are the kinds of things I think you're seeing where consumers are way ahead of, of where governments are. So that's where I think we'll end up moving towards uh, going into 2022, much more consumer-driven, voter-driven initiatives. And if the federal government uh, is is smart about that, they will find ways to re-enable people bringing back those those Energy Star appliance uh, rebate programs, those types of things that are actually tangible to how people are trying to uh, live a better life. When you look at each federal party leader, and, and we'll stick Annemi Paul in there because she was leader of the Greens for, for most of 2021, who would you say had a successful year and who had a failure of a 2021? Well, I think there's no question that Anna Mae Paul and the Green Party had a had a failure of a year, failure to capitalize uh, on any sort of green momentum we were seeing across Canada. 
Um, I think Aaron O'Toole did not come out of the gate very strong in terms of telling Canadians who he was and what kind of a leader he wanted to be. I think he, he will struggle with that going into the new year, how to manage his caucus, how to really showcase to Canadians who he wants to be. Um, I think Justin Trudeau uh, has done an okay job of, of, of leadership. I think, again, he's going to have to answer his own internal leadership questions. I think uh, Jagmeet Singh started the, started the campaign off fairly strong and made some, made some campaign mistakes that I think cost him at the polls. But all of this will be on the backdrop, Rick, of what happens with uh, Bill 21, uh, the bill out of Quebec, which uh, uh, bans anyone from wearing any sort of religious uh, symbols or, or clothing. That is, is really seized how, how Canadians uh, expect our federal government and our, and our federation to work. They, they expect our federal government to say, no, racist bills are not appropriate and, and the federal government should have a better role in that. Is this going to strike a constitutional crisis? I don't know. Should it? Probably. Wow. Uh, can we throw in PPC leader Maxime Bernier? Was he <laughs> successful or, or, or does he get a failing grade in 2021? You know, I, I'm not sure that when you when you're a political leader who has no intention on in serving in political office, uh, whether or not that that's that's a good thing. Basically, he was running a political party. From my perspective, ran a political party that was about being more destructive than constructive. Um, but I I think his his once again failure to secure any seats or any meaningful gain for his party um, it really did hurt him. Uh, it hurts his credibility going forward. Last one for Kim Wright, principal at Wright Strategies. Is there a party that's best positioned to make the biggest mark, the biggest splash in 2022? I, I think that any of them can. It really does depend upon what they want to do. How do they want to showcase what they have learned through the pandemic uh, and, and going forward, what is their alternative for Canadians? How would they do this better? How would they re- recalibrate healthcare? How would they recalibrate our social safety net? How do you manage the practical and the high-level public policy? And and none of none of the leaders on the stage have yet to really capture the imagination of people. They they have been much more in that mudslinging way. They all have an opportunity to to grow. Uh, Canadians are willing and and want to look for leadership uh, and in the absence of that they go back to what they know kim really appreciate the time today all the best in 2022 thank you you as well that again is kim wright's principal and founder of Wright strategies as we look back at uh, 2021 and the year that was in federal politics a lot of highs and uh, certainly some lows as well you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml the royal botanical gardens wants your christmas tree a real one They, they don't want your fake one But why do they want your Christmas tree? Well, let's ask our next guest. Barbara McKean is the head of education at Royal Botanical Gardens and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Barb. Good morning. So why does the RBG want our tree? Well, uh, we'd like to put it to work for us to help nature out in uh, the Grindstone Creek Valley. So we're working on rebuilding uh, the the walls of the, the creek, the channel of the creek, very, very badly eroded um, and that we continue to have problems. These big storms that we get send a wall of water through the uh, the valley after a heavy rain and uh, takes away the, the banks. And for the last 20 years or so, we've been 
uh, working to sort of renew and rebuild the banks using the trees. They work great, and it's actually a, a sort of natural technology that's being used in other places that started at RBG at the beginning of uh, 2000. So how do these Christmas trees help the, the ecosystem and, and restore the banks? What's, what's happening there when these trees are all placed? So we get them placed in in the area where the bank would originally have been and uh, build up a big mound of them, pack them in. Uh, in some cases, we've you know built sort of a wooden barriers that they sit in, almost like a, a box that's open at the top. We pack the trees down, and then when we get one of these big flows of water, uh, whether it's the spring runoff or after a heavy storm in the summer, they actually capture a lot of the sediment that's in the water. So, you know, those needles on the trees hang on for a while. Hopefully, we really like balsam fir because they hang on to the needles a little bit better, just like people like it better in their house because it doesn't drop quite as much in the uh, when you've got it indoors in the winter. But they... Um, yeah, they capture that. They work like a sieve. They capture the, the sediment. And as it builds up on there, um, the trees compress, gets a little bit denser. It keeps carp away from the banks because they are one of the problems that has actually contributed to erosion and uh, problems that we have. And we've actually been able in that area to make areas behind the, the, uh, the barrier that work for the fish to come in and spawn in the spring and keep the carp out. We've actually got little carp gates, not quite the uh, complicated technology of the fishway at the mouth of Coots Paradise going into the harbour, but uh, but gates that will keep the big carp away from the the old stream bank and uh, hopefully start to reduce their reproduction rate and uh, eventually get the population to collapse with them. Barbara McKean is our guest, Head of Education at Royal Botanical Gardens. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. We're chatting about the Royal Botanical Gardens wanting your Christmas tree to lay along uh, the bed of uh, Grindstone Creek and Chidoke Creek. Um, are, are past trees removed from the site and then new ones are put on? Is that how it works? No, eventually they the trees do break down in time. And we just that's why each year we've been looking for more trees. Uh, both there, the mouth of Shadoke Creek, we've done some work as well, mostly in grindstone. Um, but, but yeah, we just, there's, you know, some of them get swept away occasionally. We've had problems with high lake levels in the last few years where the berms have gotten topped. And uh, so we've wanted to be building them up higher. And these floods, as they get the bigger and bigger, we need to make them the berms bigger and uh, and firmer. So there's always a, an incoming need for them each year. You mentioned uh, one of the uh, efforts behind this idea is to reduce the carp population, which is really wiping out some of the other um, um, entities, if you will, of the of the ecosystem in that area. Are 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 we seeing this program uh, working? Overall, between the fishway and uh, certainly the work in there, yes, when we can keep carp out, they, they, you know, the population has dropped. Goldfish are kind of becoming more of a problem, though, and stepping into some of that place. So uh, it's not something that's going to go away tomorrow, uh, just a problem. And, you know, we're trying to rebuild predatory animal you know, populations, more herons and egrets and osprey and eagles that uh, that will help with managing those species as well. So, yeah, it, it's an ongoing thing of just bringing wetlands back that uh, can function well and support biodiversity and clean our water up as well uh, in these areas 
as we get to the, the mouths of some of the creeks, they can just, as I say, big sieves that if ne- we get natural plants growing, which happens with the berms um, with, once you get enough sediment. And they've got deep root, the wetland plants have got deep root systems that uh, help to knit the thing in place. And um, But they have a lot of other functions in the water and the ecosystem as well. So how many good all around. Yeah. How many trees do you need and where can people drop them off? Well, we need about 1,500 this year. Uh, over the years, we've had 175,000 donated. And, you know, thanks. Big shout out to people in the community that have donated. We are taking online registrations for them. There's still some spots left, but not many. And they go to rbg.ca slash pledge to donate your Christmas tree. But you put a dash between each word in there and uh, there's just a, a quick registration form uh, we we don't want ones we don't we, we don't need too many of them <laughs> that creates problems for us so we're asking just people who have registered to uh, to drop them off and uh, when you register you get the location of, of where they're uh, being accepted excellent and is there a deadline in place uh, by January the 9th the trees need to be dropped off and uh, as long as we've got ice conditions, uh, along the creek there, we'll start deploying them right after that. Excellent. Well, good luck with the project. Hopefully we can keep those carp and goldfish away and uh, boost up the ecosystem in uh, Shadokan and Grindstone Creeks. Barbara, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much. Barbara McKean is the Head of Education at the Royal Botanical Gardens. You can go online to donate your Christmas tree, RBG. Uh, .ca. There's links on the site for you to do so and register uh, and, uh, yeah, help protect the ecosystem in uh, in the creek system in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Exciting news on the way in 2022 surrounding the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. It is getting ready to celebrate its 50th anniversary, if you can believe it. Dave Rohr is the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum and joins us now on Good Morning morning, Hamilton. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. 50 years. Where has the time gone? Wow. Yeah, it's hard to believe. You know, we uh, 1972, Dennis Bradley and three other gentlemen uh, bought a, a, you know, a firefly, a fairy firefly, uh, and uh, brought it back from uh, the south of the west United States and, and restored it and created what now is today the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. Amazing. So did they have this vision that this grand museum would one day become a reality? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I think in honesty, uh, most of them were from the investment community in Toronto. And I think they, I, I think they wanted to, you know, remember their service and their sacrifice and duty during World War II and, and, uh, you know, obviously recognize that and, and have a standing tribute to it, but I don't think anybody realized that it would become the Canada's largest flying museum today, and one that, to a large extent, uh, is privately funded and, and operates as a business. Yeah, all these years later, you have dozens of planes, some uh, um, amazing artifacts. It is really a a treasured piece in this community. Well, you know, I'm really, I'm really proud of Hamilton. I'm proud of our community. I'm proud of the support uh, from our community, and it is really something special. Nowhere else in Canada. I mean, every weekend during the summer, pretty much, you can see our airplanes flying. And of course, uh, seven thousand three hundred and seventy-seven Lancasters were built, uh, and only two are flying today. 
and uh, one is right here in Hamilton, and it, and it was also built by Canadians, which is, makes it even more special because uh, Victory Aircraft, which was uh, at the site of Pearson Aircraft today, was a crown corporation set up by C.D. Howe to build Lancasters, and this this we built 430, the only country outside of the U.K. to build Lancasters during the war, and this is the last flying Canadian-built Lancaster. What does it take to keep that plane in the air? Well, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it, it takes, uh, obviously, uh, you know, it takes funds for, for number one, but that also takes a lot of know-how. Uh, it takes a lot of technical skills and maintenance skills to, to maintain the Merlin engines and to maintain uh, all the mechanical systems on the airplane. And then, of course, it, it takes uh, pilot skills to be able to, and crew skills to be able to operate the airplane safely. And, of course, where do you go to learn how to fly a Lancaster? Well, <laughs> You, you come to the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum because we really are uh, the experts now. We've been operating the airplane since 1988, believe it or not. And uh, so we treat, we teach and train ourselves and our own people and our own uh, members who we select to fly the airplane. Of course, in, in that, that case, all professional pilots uh, with uh, many hours and years of experience. The Lancaster, one of the true gems at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, which will be celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2022. We're in discussion with Dave Rohr, President and CEO of the museum, here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. You mentioned the Lancaster and maybe some new pilots that have hopped into the cockpit. Is it almost like hopping into a, a vintage car because it's oh, it's yeah. not quite the same as uh, you know today's modern technology? You know, I think, well, I started flying in 1972, believe it or not, and I think of the difference in technology even between 1972 to now, and not even thinking of going back to 1945, and it's just, you know, when you see the difference in cars, for example, from 72 to today, you see, you know, GPS, and you see uh, radar, and automatic braking, emergency stopping, and side monitoring, and all the technologies, and and, uh, computerization, well, when you get into the Lancaster, you're going back to the very basics of uh, needle ball and airspeed and flying the airplane. There's no mechanical assist. You're flying the airplane. All the systems are, are really mechanical and operate that way. And so in in, in many ways, um, the, you, you're much more hands-on. You're, you're, you're controlling everything. There's no autopilot. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no computers to run any systems. You're managing and operating all the systems. So the flight engineer is, is very busy, and the pilots are, are busy as well. And for navigation purposes, when we took uh, the Lancaster over to England in uh, 2014 to fly with the other only other flying Lancaster at the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at Royal Air Force Base Coningsby, uh, we had to substantially invest in the, in the airplane and upgrade many of the uh, navigation systems uh, because of the fact that we were going to go across the North Atlantic Ocean. And so, but yes, in, in 1945, it was it's like hopping into a Model A for, <laughs> for somebody who's going to drive a car, to, you know, a new car today versus an old car. For the uh, 50th anniversary celebrations in 2022 at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, what is being planned? Well, we have a number of major events, and uh, one, we're going to have a homecoming party uh, where anybody who's been a member or associated or affiliated with the museum in any way over the 50 years, we're going to big a, we'll have a big hangar homecoming party in June, and we're also going to have an air show 50, we're calling it, and for those that remember our 40th anniversary in 2012, we had a very large uh, 
vintage airplane show, four and a half hour show. And we're going to do something like that again. We're going to do it at Brantford this year. Uh, we're going to host uh, the show at Brantford. And it's going to be on June 25th and 26th. And we're going to bring in many of our friends in, in the vintage aircraft community, some really special airplanes, uh, the Spitfires, the Hurricanes, the Lancasters, and uh, a lot of uh, salute to uh, to other museums as well as our own who are celebrating with us. So that's going to be a big event. And then we're going to also have Air Force Day in August where we invite the Royal Canadian Air Force to come to Hamilton with all their equipment and to meet the public and tell the public what their role and job is and show them the aircraft, which has always been very popular. And we're going to end the the year with a a really large gala on October 15th, Saturday, October 15th, with the official Glenn Miller Band from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And that'll be a a black tie event. And uh, we will have them... uh, and we did this once before with them, and it was such a successful event. We thought, you know, this would be a great way to uh, to end the year, so to speak, with formal uh, functions and with a big gala celebrating our history, which uh, now, you know, over 50 years, uh, you know, we, we've gone from a small fledgling operation to Canada's largest flying museum. Uh, we have over 45 aircraft. We fly over 25 of them. We maintain and operate and and teach other pilots how to fly them, and so we really and we do, we do a lot more things than that too. We've become uh, we're now moving into the, one of the big things we're starting this year is moving into the immersive digitization of the visitor experience, so that moving forward for the next ten years, we can enhance the visitor experience for anybody that comes to uh, see us. Lots of fun planned at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum as it celebrates its fiftieth anniversary in twenty twenty two. Looking forward to the festivities, Dave, and thanks for the time today. Oh, Rick, thank you, and all the best for 22, and, and we'll be over the Ticat Games rooting them on for 22. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. Dave Rohr, President and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. As you heard, lots of uh, events and activities planned for 2022. There's also a commemorative book that is going to come out, and there will be a limited supply, so you want to get your hands on that if you are a uh, airplane aficionado or a fan. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The National Football League, the football community has lost a legend. Hall of Fame coach turned broadcaster John Madden, dead at the age of 85. Now, when you get on that sideline, you have to unload on Peyton because you know he's going to unload on you. And that's what Johnson's saying. I just can't stand there and let him unload on me. And it's one of the many uh, clips that uh, you can hear of John Madden's broadcasting days, that back from the 1986 NFC Championship game in which the Chicago Bears beat the L.A. Rams en route to winning the Super Bowl uh, a week later. Uh, Madden was also the name, as uh, probably many of you know, behind the popular video game Madden NFL Football, which is simply known as Madden. Uh, John also made an appearance on Saturday Night Live back in 1982. This is John Madden, and I'm standing here in the locker room of the Cincinnati Bengals. Somebody has to win, and somebody has to lose. And on this Super Bowl Sunday, it was the Bengals who came up short. And they're taking a loss pretty hard. Tough game, tough loss, but the fight was fair. And it, it Are was you really- kidding me? Are you kidding me, man? Did you see the out-of-bounds call that the ref bought? Man, that thing was a big payoff, man. I want the country to know it was a big damn payoff. <laughs> John Madden also had a long career as a TV pitch man. He pitched several products, including beer and treatment for athlete's foot. You get a tough case of athlete's foot. The itching, the cracking, the burning. You want a medicine that acts tough. 
Boom. Tough actin, tenactin. Clinically proven tenactin cures even tough cases of athlete's foot fungus. Get tough actin, tenactin. You heard the boom. That was, uh, you know, one of his iconic trademark calls when doing uh, color analysis during a, a TV uh, football game. You know, boom. You know, describing a big hit or running back hitting the hole or whatever the case was, uh, that is synonymous with John Madden. As a coach, he was one of the best, leading the Oakland Raiders to their first Super Bowl in uh, the 1976 season. His regular season record is the best amongst NFL coaches with more than 100 games under their belt. A 759 winning percentage. That's, that's incredible. Winning 76% of the time. 103 wins, 32 losses, uh, 7 ties, if you can believe it. Back in the day, ties were a thing. Back in 2003, Madden says being on Monday Night Football was an announcer's dream job. Every broadcaster uh, that is, you know, ever done a football game in their life somewhere uh, would like to be part, would like to have the opportunity to be part of Monday Night Football. And he was, and he was for several years. He was the preeminent voice of American TV sports for most of his career. He also won an unprecedented 16 Emmy Awards. John Madden covered 11 Super Bowls for four different TV networks from 1979 to 2009. He got to start with CBS um, behind the, uh, the, the camera. Uh, or in front of the camera, partnering with Pat Summerall to become the network's top announcing duo. Uh, he then moved to Fox, and this was a big move in 1994 because it really gave Fox credibility as a major network when uh, they were trying to you know, wedge their way into the National Football League. It was really CBS, um, ABC, NBC came around. Um, Madden also went on to call primetime games at ABC and NBC and ultimately uh, retired after the 2009 Super Bowl following Pittsburgh's uh, thrilling victory over Arizona 27-23. to A lot of individuals are remembering Coach Madden, including broadcaster Bob Costas, who says Madden changed how football was covered on TV. It was not standard procedure until John came along to have a scheduled meeting with the head coach and with maybe the quarterback and several other key players the day before the game. It was sort of just catch as catch can. And John said, no, we're going to do this in a different way. There's going to be a standard way that we prepare. And that is huge. And that is a big part of many pregame shows, no matter the television network, no matter the league, really, whether it's uh, football or baseball or hockey, it's you know meeting with coaches and players, talking about game plans, uh, injuries, that kind of stuff. John Madden started that. And and Costas, by the way, worked with Madden early in his broadcasting career and saw that potential immediately. I was the guy asked to do play-by-play for his audition game. And even though John was very nervous and definitely didn't have any plan to be a broadcaster, it was just something he kind of shrugged his shoulders about and said, you know, let me see, I'll give it a try. After four quarters, I couldn't have predicted that he would have the spectacular career he did, but I certainly knew after that one game that he could be a very good broadcaster if he wanted it. And Costa says, you know, what made Madden so likable is just his uh, uniqueness, yet his familiarity. He was a genuine character. People related to him. He was simultaneously an everyman and yet totally unique 
which is an interesting combination. There was no one else quite like him, and yet he was completely relatable to the average fan. Madden began his coaching career at the age of 32, left 10 years later, in part because he was afraid of flying, and he would uh, travel, certainly in his broadcast days, by coach bus. And that bus would go around the country, around North America, and uh, into the uh, stadiums and cities where that Sunday or Monday game would be played. Uh, or later on in the career, Thursday night football became a huge thing in the National Football League. John Madden was front and center year after year, game after game. Uh, one of the true legends of football is now gone. John Madden dead at the age of 85. Rest in peace. Coach Madden. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.